0: Turn your Bibles, please, to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We continue our study through the life of David, the book of Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we'll read over it. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba? The daughter of Eliam, wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am with child. So David sent word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab And the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat, drink, and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, "You servant, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now <clears throat> one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And may God add his richest blessing to the reading of this portion of his holy word. Will you pray with me, please? Again, our Father, we are thankful for your word, and we pray that by the power of your spirit that you would come and speak your word to us, that we might hear the voice of Jesus Christ, the good shepherd in our hearts, and that his sheep would know him and follow him, see him high and lifted up, and offer ourselves to him promptly and sincerely in spite of the inability and sin of the preacher. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated, please. Downfall. On October the 18th, 1992, I went to bed sometime between 11 p.m. and midnight. I was in the sixth grade and had school the next morning. So it was a very late bedtime for me then. But looking back, it's hard to believe that I went to bed that early. That night was the second game of the World Series between the Braves and Toronto Blue Jays. The Braves had a 4-2 lead going into the eighth inning and seemed to be cruising to a commanding early lead in the World Series. But my favorite pitcher, John Smoltz, ran out of gas in the eighth inning. The Jays narrowed the gap four to three, but the bullpen got out of the jam. At the end of the regular season, the Braves had traded with the Red Sox for Jeff Reardon, one of the most dominant closers of the time. Now, I don't remember if I was just exhausted or was threatened with corporal punishment if I kept watching TV or what, but I went to bed after the top of the eighth inning confident that Atlanta would go up two games to none on Toronto. The way the regular season and the championship series had played out, it just seemed like the Braves were invincible at that point. The next morning, I was shocked to find that Atlanta had lost the game five to four. It was the beginning of a three-game losing streak that demoralized the team and its fan base and ended with the Braves being handily defeated in six games. You know, if you had read through 2 Samuel 10, then... Closed your Bible and gone to bed, and then got up the next morning and picked up anywhere further down in 2 Samuel, you would be shocked. How did this happen? What went wrong? David was on a roll, he was on a winning streak. The Lord had finally given him the kingdom, and everything seemed, he seemed to be doing everything right. Israel was stronger than ever. No enemy could defeat them. But the rest of 2 Samuel is just one problem after another, after another, after another for King David. One mistake. One hanging breaking ball lobbed through the center of the strike zone with neither movement nor velocity to a pinch hitter that had batted a meager 234 that season resulted in a two-run homer that turned the tide against my team and from which they never recovered. And one mistake, one godless, evil act by the man after God's own heart turned the tide against King David. Now let's look together at David's downfall. First in this passage, we see the pattern of sin. The pattern of sin. Look at verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now you remember that uh, David had sent an uh, official friendly delegation to the Ammonites when King Nahash had died but his son the new king Hanan had humiliated them and then formed alliances against Israel and got in position to attack. So all these nations led by the Ammonites were coming against Israel but David deployed his commander Joab an army and they defeated all the forces allied against them handily. The text even says that David fought and slew them. But now here we come to find out that Joab and the army are gone fighting the Ammonites, but David stayed in Jerusalem. And there was the beginning of the great sin. Now we're gonna trace the pattern of David's sin. And it begins with neglect. David was back in Jerusalem while Joab and the army were fighting the battle. We sin when we're not busy doing what we're supposed to be doing. Idle hands, idle minds, the devil's workshop and tools. It's important in life to keep busy. To keep busy with good, constructive, industrious activity. Go back to the Garden of Eden, and you remember how after the servant, the serpent tempted Eve and she ate the forbidden fruit, it says she gave it to her husband who was. With her. Adam was there all the time. Doing what? Nothing. Not taking care of his wife. Not taking care of the garden. Neglect. Second. Desire. Look at verse two. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful and David sent and inquired about the woman and one said, is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? He saw a beautiful woman taking a bath. Immediately he got interested. Asked, who is that woman? Well, she's... Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery.' But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's a desire. We trace a pattern from neglect to desire and in the act itself. Verse 4 So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she'd been purifying herself from her uncleanness since she returned to her house. Now he's done it now. Neglect, desire, act. But last in this pattern of sin comes death. Look at verse five. The woman conceived. She sent and told David, I'm a child. Ah, the plot thickens. No way it can be her husband's. He's been gone fighting. You know what happens. David tells Joab to send for Uriah. And David interviews Uriah and then sends him home with good food from his own table. Presumably, once Uriah goes home for the night, the paternity of the baby will no longer be a question. Except Uriah will not go home. He sleeps by the door with the king's servant. And when David inquires why he won't go home to his wife, look at Uriah's response in verse 11. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And note the contrast between Uriah and David. I can't go home while my brothers are sleeping in the open fields of battle. Meanwhile, David in the palace had his way with Uriah's wife while Uriah was out fighting and sleeping in the open fields on David's behalf. Now this very statement from Uriah should have overwhelmed David with grief and shame. But instead, he just moved on to plan B. Get Uriah drunk, then send him home. The rest will take care of itself. But Uriah, drunk, has more self-control than David, sober. He still won't go. So then David resorts to the nuclear option. Look at verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah to the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Uriah delivers his own death warrant to Joab. David orders him, put Uriah on the front line in the hardest fighting and pull everyone back and leave him out to be killed. Joab did as ordered, Uriah died. So did other soldiers. And notice the other soldiers that died are referred to in verse 17 as the servants of David. So the thought, the desire led to the act. And now it has led to death. Turn to the book of James, chapter one. James, chapter one. And look at verse fourteen. James, one, fourteen. James, one, fourteen. But each person is tempted. When he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin doesn't just happen. It may happen fast, but it doesn't happen in a vacuum. There is always this pattern. It may move at rocket speed, but it always moves down the same path. You're keeping yourself busy with good, productive activity What you thinking about? What occupies your mind? There's a path that always ends in death. Jesus said to look on a woman with lust is adultery and that's why he went on to say, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell hell now he's not literally saying mutilate your body he's saying if something is causing you to sin get rid of it maybe your consumption of alcohol is not as moderate as you like to think it is you need to get rid of it before somebody gets killed Friends, this is not a story about some random Hebrew or Philistine who crawled up out of the gutter. This is the king who is called the man after God's own heart and this happened to him. This text is screaming at us, this could happen to you. Maybe you need to get rid of the electrical device you carry everywhere you go, and can pull up anything you want to look at at any time. This could happen to you. Could happen to me. Could happen to any one of us. It happened to David. You see the pattern of sin. Secondly, in this passage, you see the perversion of justice. The perversion of justice. Now back on the text, look at verse 22. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archer shot at your servant from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. You see David's response to the news that several soldiers and Uriah are dead. He says, tell Joab, don't be discouraged. People die every day. That's the nature of warfare. Good job. Press on. Keep up to good work. We don't know if David convinced himself, well, somebody has to die anyway. Might as well be Uriah or if he's just seared his own conscience. But David has perverted justice. Listen to David's own words, Psalm 72. I believe David wrote Psalm 72 for his son Solomon. He says, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people and deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. That's David's own prayer for the king. May he crush the oppressor. But now David himself has become the oppressor of his own people. He goes on to say, for he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Well, the blood of Uriah and the fallen servants is not at all precious in the sight of David. He has perverted the justice of God. So you see the pattern of sin, you see the perversion of justice. And thirdly, and finally in this passage, we see the perspective that matters. The perspective that matters. Look at verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done this pleased the lord now we don't know what bathsheba thought she is no more than an object to david but she mourns and when the morning is up david takes her as his wife but notice the last word of the text the thing that david had done displeased the lord Now remember when Uriah and the other servants had died, David told Joab, don't let this displease you. Well, David could tell Joab what to think, but he cannot tell God Almighty how to think. David may have felt relieved that he had gotten away with adultery and murder. But it was wrong. God saw what he did, and God was not pleased. You know, the only perspective that matters is God's. I may think I'm a good person, at least, better than average. May even fool a few of you into thinking I'm a good person. But God says I'm a sinner. And his word on the matter is the only one that counts. He's seen it all. Every action, every thought, every secret. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. David has perverted justice in Jerusalem, but justice will never be twisted. At the throne of God. And if we get justice from God, we will go to hell. Now there's more to this story. We'll get to it next time, God willing, but we gotta jump ahead a bit. We we can't just leave it there. Now, David found mercy. He asked God for mercy. And he got it. We need God's mercy. You need mercy. That's why God sent his son Jesus into the world to bear our justice so that we can receive mercy. Jesus died on the cross because David took Bathsheba and murdered Uriah. The perfect king died For the adulterer and murderer, unworthy of the title King of Israel. There is mercy in Jesus Christ for sinners. Do you know yourself to be a sinner? You see yourself as God sees you. That's the only perspective that matters. There is mercy in Jesus Christ for sinners today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen.